Amen. Thank you, team. Let's show our appreciation for those children's ministry workers. Amen. It's good to be in the house of the Lord, isn't it? I, uh, I was feeling very thankful this morning and, and aware that uh, not everybody who wants to be here can be here. I know there's lots of sickness going around. We've got some sickness going through in our house, but uh, if you're able and if you're here, uh, I hope that you're, you're glad to be here. It is a blessing and a delight. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19. That's on page 161 in the Pew Bibles, Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19. Uh, as was mentioned just a few moments ago, this is the first Sunday in Advent. Uh, if you're newer to church and trying to figure out all these, uh, these funny words that, that Christians use, uh, Advent is a, uh, a word that means significant arrival. And, uh, and so sometimes you'll hear people talk about the advent of television and how, you know, that changed our culture forever. Uh, or you'll hear people talk about the advent of democracy and how that, that changed the world forever. Well, in the church, we talk about the advent of Christ. We're talking about his coming because his coming changed the world. The title for our Advent series this year is What Child Is This? And we're going to use the next couple of Sundays to look at passages in the Bible that help us answer that question. This morning, we're looking at one of the most important prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus, the one who is to come. Now, it is a prophecy, but it is also a picture or a pattern that helps us anticipate in advance the sort of person that God will send. So hopefully you have your Bible open by now to Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not again hear the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so in this passage, which maybe you've read before, and uh, certainly if you've read the New Testament, you've seen it referred to multiple times. In this passage, God tells Moses, and Moses tells the people, that a prophet like him will come. And, and so the story of Moses became a sort of pattern that people looked at, and they said, okay, so we, we know the story of Moses, so somebody like that is going to come, and there, he's going to deliver us. He's going to set us free. He's going to be the Savior that we need. And so there was this expectation that developed over the course of Jewish history. The longer they waited, the, the more they reflected upon the, the pattern of Moses' life. And you can imagine that they might look at a, a prophet and say, well, here's Jonah, or here's Micah, or here's Amos, or here's Elijah. Is this the, the prophet like Moses? But all of those prophets, they did 
parts of what Moses did, but they didn't do all of what Moses did. And so the expectation kind of grew and grew and grew. And of course, that expectation was still growing in the time of the New Testament. So you remember that when John the Baptist first came on the scene, people came up to him, as recorded in John 1, 21, and said, are you the prophet? And he answered and said, no. So people were looking. They had the life and the pattern of Moses held up as kind of like a lens Uh, or a set of clues, if you like, and they were looking for the one who was coming. And the early church, of course, was 100% convinced that Jesus was, in fact, the prophet like Moses. He was the one who fulfilled the pattern and even surpassed the pattern. And so Peter, in one of the first sermons we have uh, recorded in the history of the Christian church in the book of Acts, spoke about Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Are you seeing that? So, so Peter knew the story, knew the prophecy that, that a prophet like Moses would come. He had that lens, he had that pattern, and he was looking through that lens and pattern at Jesus, and he was saying, this is that. Jesus is the prophet like Moses. He's the one that God has sent to redeem his people. And then, of course, Stephen made the same point in in his famous speech or sermon in Acts 7, the one that got him killed. And so the early Christians clearly understood Jesus as having perfectly fulfilled and even surpassed this biblical pattern. Jesus was the prophet like Moses. Now, of course, he was more than that. We just sang, he's the true and better Adam. So all of the lines of anticipation in the Old Testament land on Jesus. We're talking about one today, but there's lots. You know, yes, he's the, he's the new and better Adam. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the suffering servant. Yes, 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 yes. But, but also, Jesus is the prophet like Moses. That's what we're going to talk about today. Now, there are, there are 10 ways that Jesus fulfills and surpasses this pattern set by the life and ministry of Moses. I'm going to tell you all 10, but for the sake of time, I'm only going to unpack the five most significant of those, okay? So here's the full list. How is Jesus a prophet like Moses if you're one of those people that wants the director's cut? Okay, here it is. Here's all the points, and then on your outline, we've just got five for you, but here's, here's all five. How is Jesus, or here's all 10, I should say. Here's how Jesus is a prophet like Moses. First of all, he's a prophet like Moses in that he was an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham through the line of promise. Now, we're not going to unpack that one, but that actually is significant. Moses said, a prophet is going to arise like me from among your brethren, which is to say he's going to be Jewish. He's going to be an Israelite. That's important, actually, because the Muslims say that Muhammad was the prophet like Moses. And Muhammad was a descendant of Abraham, but if you recall, through the line of Ishmael. So this may seem like a throwaway point, like, oh, everybody knows that, but actually, no, this might be one of the most contested points on the list, okay? Number two, so he was an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham through the line of promise, and then number two, he escaped genocide as a child. We usually read that story sometime in the Christmas season as well. You remember uh, Jesus was in Bethlehem, and King Herod wanted to to kill uh, the Messiah, and so uh, murdered all the little ones under two years old, and Mary and Joseph escaped that by hiding away in Egypt. Okay, number three, he did many signs and wonders. Number four, he sets his people free from slavery. 
Number five, he serves as a mediator between the Lord and his people. Number six, he makes a covenant between the Lord and his people. Number seven, he speaks an authoritative word from God. Number eight, he feeds his people in a dry and desert land. Number nine, he's resisted and rejected by many people. Number 10, he leads the faithful into their promised inheritance. That's the full list. But as I said, for the sake of time, I'm just going to unpack the five most important of those in terms of our recognition and appreciation of Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So we'll talk first about how, like Moses, Jesus sets his people free from slavery. In a sense, this gives us the opportunity to unpack number three and number four, because the miracles that Moses did were associated with his role as the deliverer of God's people. God didn't give Moses miraculous powers so that he could entertain and amuse the masses. He gave Moses miraculous powers so that the people would recognize him as the deliverer that God had sent and so that he could defeat the human and demonic powers that held his people captive. And of course, the same could be said about Jesus. Like Moses, Jesus didn't do miracles to entertain the masses. In fact, when the masses asked for a miracle, usually Jesus said, go home. The miracles were not to entertain The miracles were to defeat the power of the devil and to set God's people free. That's how Jesus himself described them. He said, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed, he may plunder his house. So that's what I'm doing, Jesus says. I'm not doing these these miracles to, to entertain you. I'm doing these miracles to bind the strong man so that I can plunder the devil's dungeon. We don't talk nearly enough about this aspect of Christ's work as evangelicals. As evangelicals, we we tend to be so focused on the atoning aspect of Christ's work. That is to say, we focus so much on the cross as the way that God forgives our sins. And, And that is the way that God forgives our sins. I want to be clear. I'm not saying you've got to choose. I'm saying you should broaden your appreciation of the cross. As conservative evangelicals, we focus almost exclusively on what's called penal substitutionary atonement, which is fantastic. I want to be clear. I believe in penal substitutionary atonement. I affirm it. I celebrate it. I rest in it. I rejoice in it. But there is actually more to the cross than that. The the cross is not just the way that, that Jesus pays for your sins. The cross also represents a significant victory over the devil. And the Apostle Paul thought it was important for us to appreciate both aspects of that work. He said, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. That's where most of us say amen and tap out. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Hallelujah. And yet there's more. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's a wonderful balance, isn't it? So yes, the the cross wipes out the record of your sins and transgressions. Hallelujah. But it also cut the hamstring of your enemy. It also knocked the sword out of the devil's hand it also decisively undermines the ability of the devil to deceive, 
influence and control you. Are you celebrating that? You should be. That's very good news. Christian, do you understand that because of Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven and free? So many Christians today only care about the first part of that equation. They are very thankful, very aware, very focused on the fact that through the cross, all our sins can be wiped away. And they're like, fantastic. Then, then why not keep sinning, right? Keep sinning, do whatever you like, live however you choose, and then you pray a little prayer, and all of it goes away. It's a great system. The Apostle Paul absolutely hated it when people spoke of our salvation that way. He said, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Isn't that good news? You see, for the apostles, the salvation of Christ was about more than just forgiveness. It was about forgiveness and freedom together. Why? Because that's the biblical pattern. God didn't set the Jews free from slavery in Egypt so that they could live like animals in the desert. In fact, if you, if you read carefully lots of the laws, some of which confuse us, you're like, why can't, you know, what's with the goats? Why can't you, you know, uh, go and, and have contact with goats in the desert? Like, what's going on? That's because that's the kind of demonic, animal-like, pagan worship you, that, that was practiced in Egypt. We are not going to do that as God's people. And, and, and so many of the laws were explicitly about we're not going to be like that anymore. So God didn't set the people free just so that they could go like a dog returning to its vomit, you know, as, as the old saying, which is the saying, by the way, we get from the Bible. God didn't set people free so that like dogs returning to their own vomit, we could continue to live like animals. No. He gave them a good law so that they could learn again how to be the human beings they were created and intended to be in the first place. Exact same thing in the New Testament. Jesus doesn't set us free so that we can continue to live like animals just with a clean conscience. No. He, he, he heals our hearts. He fills us with the Holy Spirit so that we can be faithful, obedient, kind, generous, and loving people. That's what it means to be saved, to have a healed heart, a healed heart that is filled with the Holy Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, freedom. Now, sometimes we hear that and we say, oh, yes, good, freedom to do whatever I want. No, that's not what freedom is in the Bible. It's not freedom to live like an animal. It's freedom to live above your fallen human desires. Can I tell you, I said this is something we need to talk more about, and I think we need to talk more about this because it's the fundamental flaw in evangelical Christianity, right? And you say, well, pastor, why don't you point out the fundamental flaw in Roman Catholics or Eastern Orthodox, because they're not here. Bring them next week, and, and we can tell them what's wrong with them. But we're here. We're here. And the fundamental problem with us 
is that we talk so much about forgiveness that we leave here thinking that we're free to live however we want. And the name of Christ is blasphemed among the nations because of us. Right? Because we are so focused on that. Oh, pastor, I said my prayers last night. I'm good to go. But you're living like an animal, which is, which is to deny the, the power of the gospel, which is to deny the power of the Holy Spirit in us. I think we need to understand that the goal is for us to be restored as human beings, to live again like we were supposed to do. And so I'm not saying we should talk less about the power of the blood of Jesus to wipe your slate clean. I'm saying we should also talk more about the fact that the cross has knocked the sword out of the devil's hand and has given you the ability now to begin to put one foot in front of the other and walk up out of the ditch and begin to stand up straight and live like the person you were created and intended to be. That's what it means that to be set free. That's what Moses did for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. That's what Jesus does for the people in the New Testament. That's probably the most obvious, and I, as I said, I think I would argue the most important way that Jesus fulfills and surpasses this prophetic pattern, but there's more. Like Moses, Jesus makes a covenant between the Lord and his people. A covenant is a mutually agreed upon relationship dynamic, usually between a greater and a lesser party. So covenants, you know, probably the only place you hear the word covenant used now is in a religious context. We talk about the old covenant, we talk about the new covenant. Maybe you, hear, you use it in the marriage context. A marriage is a type of covenant, right? It's an agreed upon relationship. Um, I'm not sure if anybody listens when we do weddings. Or, I mean, maybe the people in the audience do. The bride and groom are thinking about other stuff, I'm sure. Um, but there's, like the language there is a set of expectations and responsibilities, right? And, and so it is in a religious context. In a covenant, the, the, there's usually most of the political covenants are between like an emperor and a vassal king or between a king and a noble. They make a covenant. Uh, the king will do this or the emperor will do this and the vassal will do this, this, and this. And the same thing. A covenant in a religious context is a, an arrangement between people and God. God says, I will be your God. I will bless you. I will give you this and this and that. And then in return, you will walk before me this way. That's a covenant. Moses brokered a covenant between God and Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. He reminded them that that God had mercifully saved them. The covenant begins with grace. Sometimes we think that the old covenant was, you know, all about laws and rules and the new covenant is all about grace. That's a distortion. The, The old covenant was also premised on grace. I'm sure you remember the, the preface to the Ten Commandments, meaning what, what does Exodus 20 say before we get into the Ten Rules or the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, right? I've already saved you. So I'm not giving you Ten Rules that you keep and then you get to be my people. No, no, I've saved you. You are my people. Now walk this way. That's a covenant based on, on grace. And so that's what happened. In Exodus 20, God's, Moses reminds the people of who God is and what he's done to save them. And he says, now we're going to walk this way. And the people say, yes, yes, yes. Everything you say, Moses, sounds great. That's exactly what we'll do. Then in Exodus 24, verse 8, it says, and Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. Covenants are bloody things. Uh, political covenants, actually, uh, the, the emperor or the vassal would take a bunch of sacrificial animals, cut them in half, 
and you'd pull them apart like this. So what would that create? It was literally called a trail of blood, right? So you take it, you take a nice big ox, you cut it down the hat with a chainsaw. I don't know if they had chainsaws back in the day, but they cut it in half and they pulled it apart and then another animal, and you pull it apart. And then the, the, the vassal has to walk through the trail of blood and say, I understand my obligations and privileges as I enter into this relationship of my own free will. Interesting. So in the religious context, Moses takes the blood. Remember, they did all the sacrifices when they cut the covenant. By the way, they cut the covenant. That's where that language comes from. Uh, so when they cut the covenant, they, they had all this blood. He takes, he puts uh, a thing in, uh, in, what do you call that now? I'm losing my brain. Whatever it is. The thing that you splatter people with. I'm not a Roman Catholic, so I can't remember all these things. But there's a thing you dip in the blood and you splatter people with. Uh, and, and Moses would do that. He'd put it in the blood like this, and he'd whoosh. And so everybody in the front row got a mouthful of the old covenant. Right? That's why you sit in the back row. But that's, that's how they did it, right? And, and, and he said the words, behold the blood of the covenant. And people are like, I am beholding, right? Okay, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So the covenant was sealed in blood. All right, well, what does that sound like? Remember, the life and story of Moses is an illustration in advance to help us better appreciate and celebrate Jesus. What does that sound like? Well, of course, it sounds like the way Jesus instituted the new covenant. In Luke 22, he took a cup of wine and he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So there is Jesus playing the role of Moses, a prophet who establishes a covenant between God and human beings, a covenant that he seals with blood. Every time we take the cup in communion, we are acknowledging that we are relating to God, our creator, through the new deal that has been established by the person and work and specifically the life and death of Jesus Christ. We are literally covering ourselves in the blood. We are reminding ourselves of our privileges and responsibilities as new covenant people. That's what it means. And, and, and so each time you take communion, when you take the cup, you are saying, it's a gesture that's supposed to communicate something. That's what gestures are for. You know, sometimes as evangelicals, we don't like gestures. We're like, oh, it's so ritualistic and formulaic. It's like, yeah, but it actually helps you communicate faith. Now, it only works if you know what you're communicating. And so we're trying to tell you. Today, we're going to take communion. When you do, if you understand and you mean it, it is real. It is you taking a cup of blood, metaphorically, it's, it's not actually blood, right? It's, it's wine, and, and, and in our context, it's non-alcoholic wine. You're going to take that, and you're saying, I understand that I, I am approaching my creator through the person and work of Christ, through the shed blood. I am reminding myself of my privileges as, an, as a son or a daughter of the new covenant, and I'm also mindful of my responsibility to walk before God as I have agreed to do. In essence, you're re-upping your baptismal pledge. That's what communion is. That's why, by the way, you're supposed to get baptized before you take communion. That's the initial pledge of allegiance. This is the regular re-upping on that pledge. Every time you take communion, you're restating what you said in your baptism. I'm coming to God through the person 
and work of Christ. Remember that because you'll be given the opportunity to reaffirm that pledge at the end of this service. So Jesus brokers a new and better covenant between God and people. New and better. Now, it's not disrespectful of me to say that. In fact, if Moses were here sitting in the front row today, he'd say aloud amen to that. Remember, Jesus fulfills and surpasses all of these Old Testament patterns. So everything he does is like Moses, only better. And the author of of the epistle to the Hebrews, of course, makes that point again and again and again. He talks about all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done on our behalf, and then with no hesitation whatsoever, he says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Can you say amen to that? Amen. It's a better covenant. This is a a better way of relating to God. It's a better deal. It's a better arrangement. It's a better way for us to approach our creator and to live before him. The Mosaic covenant wasn't bad, but the new covenant is better. Can I just tell you one thing I like better about the new covenant? I can make you a list of 10 things, right? But for the sake of time, let me just tell you one. I, I like that the new covenant gives us commands and the power to fulfill them. Because the old covenant only gave us commands. The old covenant said, here, here is the standard, do it and you'll live. But no one could do it. They were so diseased and diminished by sin that it was like saying to a prisoner in Alcatraz who hasn't eaten in six weeks, there's the mainland, go ahead and swim for your freedom. They'll be drowning and dead before they get off the beach. But the new covenant is better because it not only points us in the right direction, it gives us the grace to move in in that direction. We get a healed heart. There's one who's gone before us, who's opened the way, who's done the, the work. And then he says, okay, follow me. And we're to just keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. And we get grace through the Holy Spirit to put one foot in front of the other every day. It's wonderful. That's wonderful. As St. Augustine prayed so many years ago, O God, command what you will and give what you command. That's a new covenant prayer. All right, thirdly, in terms of the, the five aspects of this pattern we're looking at today, like Moses, Jesus speaks an authoritative word from God. Moses was a prophet like nobody else in the Old Testament. He was categorically unique. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but actually in the first five books of the Bible, sometimes called the Pentateuch, sometimes called the Torah, Moses is never actually referred to in those five books as a prophet. Jewish commentator Jeffrey Tagay says here, apparently, despite the status of the prophet as God's messenger, the title prophet was felt to be too narrow and too restricted to be applied to a figure as exalted and comprehensive as Moses. Isn't that interesting? So even though Moses is the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, he's not referred to as a prophet because that actually would be disrespectful to Moses because he was so much more than a prophet. Isn't that interesting? Moses was in a class by himself. And you know, in the Old Testament, Moses did things that, no other prophet is said to do. 
Moses went into the tent of meeting and he spoke to God face to face like a man speaks to his friend. No other prophet did that. You know, Elijah hears the, the still small voice, right? There, there are prophets, like think of Zechariah and the interesting dreams that he had. I wonder sometimes if Zechariah understood those dreams, right? We, we had a whole class trying to understand those dreams. So, so somebody gets a dream, you know, somebody gets a, a, a vision. Moses went into a tent and spoke to God face to face like a man speaks to his friend. Nobody else did that. And if any other prophet ever tried to compare themselves to Moses, God was not happy. Do you remember the time when Miriam and Aaron tried to compare themselves to Moses? They said, well, we're prophets too, right? Aaron, Aaron, actually, you think about it, was Aaron was a priest and a prophet. So you think that's pretty exalted stuff, right? I mean, there's a sense in which Moses is prophet, priest, and king, but still, Aaron, Aaron uh, is, in a sense, prophet and priest. That's impressive. And then Miriam, she was a prophetess, and so they thought, well, maybe, maybe there should be more of like a three-party, three-person three approach to leadership. It shouldn't just be Moses. Maybe it should be all of us together working collaboratively. God didn't like that idea. And so he descended in a pillar of cloud. He called Aaron and Miriam to take a step out from the people, which is never good, right? That's worse than standing in the front row. It's like if you say, now you two, take three steps forward, everybody else, five step back, lay down some plastic, right? That's a bad start to a conversation. God, God says, Miriam, I want you to take a step forward. Aaron, I want you to take a step forward. Descends in a, in a pillar of cloud. A voice comes out of the cloud saying, hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth clearly, not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And if you remember, when he departed, Miriam was covered in leprosy. So the point is that Moses is in a class by himself. He doesn't share impressions. He doesn't have a dream that maybe means this. No, no. He speaks the word of God. That's a whole different thing. And people recognize that same thing when Jesus spoke. He would teach and people would say, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Do you hear that? A new teaching. Because everybody since Moses had just been repeating and applying what Moses said. That's what the rabbis did. There was one rabbi in Jesus' day who was proud of the fact that he had never said an original thing in his entire life, right? And he was holding that up as a statement of faithfulness, like, hey, man, I just, I just repeat what Moses says. Well, actually, good for you. And th th that's, that's what the rabbis did. And in an inspired sense, that's what the other Old Testament prophets did. Like, if you think about what the other Old Testament prophets did, what they really did is they referred everything back to Moses, you know, so a prophet like Amos would say, now hold it a second. Moses said that if we did this, this, and this, that, that God would bless us. And, and he'd give us prosperity in the land. We'd have great harvest and whatnot. But then he, but then he said if we did this, this, and this, then, then he'd kind of withdraw from us, and we'd face our enemies in our own power, and we'd be defeated, and we'd go off into exile. And then, and then Amos would say, now hold it. We're doing this, this, and this, 
So what do you think is going to happen? We're going to be abandoned to the power of our enemy. We're going to go off into exile. And, of course, that's what happened. So in an inspired sense, meaning they were led by God, what they said was accurate and true, that's what the other Old Testament prophets did. They referred everything back to Moses. But now here comes Jesus, and he's saying new things. He's not saying, well, now Moses said this, and so I suppose if we do this, then this. He says, no, no, listen, I know what you've heard. Let me tell you them. And he'd go right to the heart of the matter. And he'd speak about things that Moses didn't even touch on. New teaching with authority. He spoke the very words of God. He spoke the very oracles of God. When you listen to him, it's like you were listening to the word of God in human flesh. No wonder people were so affected by Jesus' teaching. In John 7.40, it says, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. No doubt. This is the one Moses said would come and speak. And anyone who would not listen to him would be cut off from the people of God, would find themselves judged by God. This is the one whose words function as the dog whistle of the kingdom. Jesus said that, right? He said, my words go out, those who are mine respond. It's literally Jesus' words that that serve to create the people of God. If you hear Jesus' words and, and, and you're like, that's truth. I recognize that as good and beautiful and true. That is God speaking, then, then you follow that voice, you enter the kingdom of God. If you hear the voice of Jesus and you say, what nonsense, or I disagree with that, or that's fine, but I have a counter thought, then you, you talk your way right out of the kingdom of God. Jesus' words have the power of life and death. They have the power of in and out. Jesus speaks and dead people come to life. Hallelujah. And then fourthly, Jesus, like Moses, feeds his people in a dry and desert land. Moses in the Old Testament, of course, is associated with the miracle of the manna. The people had a long way to go from freedom in Egypt to life in the promised land. They had to go through this desert. They got hungry. They grumbled against Moses. Moses prays to the Lord. The Lord sends them manna. The Bible says when the dew had gone up, there was in the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground, when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? By the way, that's what the word manna means. It literally just means, what is it? So if you ever eat manna bread, you're eating, what is it bread? Uh, For they know not what it is. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. So there's this fine frost-like covering out there in the desert every morning. They gathered it up. They pounded it into cakes. They fried it up into, into little bread uh, cakes. And that's what they ate. It was a miracle. It was more than a miracle, it was the miracle because God kept repeating it day after day after day until their journey had come to an end. Now, every Jewish person knew this story, which is why when a huge crowd of people came out to hear Jesus preach in the desert, instead of sending them home, he told his disciples to have them sit down. Then he took five loaves and two fishes that a little boy had made available. He gave thanks over it, and he told his disciples to distribute, and they did. They fed the entire crowd, over 5,000 people, and afterwards they collected up 12 baskets. Jesus is putting the symbolism on the bottom shelf here, isn't it? Like I'm, 12 baskets, you know, I wonder what that means, uh, right? It's a way of saying, remember how Moses fed the 12 tribes of Israel in the desert? 
well, here am I doing the exact same thing. Everybody knew what was going on. In John 6, 14, it says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Exactly. Like Moses, Jesus is capable of feeding his people, sustaining his people in a dry and dusty land. And that's good to know, isn't it? Anyone feeling like we're walking through the desert all of a sudden? Anyone feel like the wells don't have as much water in them as they used to? Anyone feeling a little tired and weary this morning? Wondering if you're going to make it all the way to the end? Jesus can take care of that. Don't grumble. Think of how much time we waste complaining. The world is hard. Newsflash. Hard. Hard for you? Look at the person beside you. Hard for them. Hard. In this world, you will have tribulation. Good news, though. Jesus can multiply bread and fishes. He can feed his people in the desert. So don't grumble. Just pray. Tell the Lord today you're tired. Tell him you're running out of resources. Tell him you're exhausted. The Lord knows how to handle that. And then lastly, Jesus is the prophet like Moses in the sense that he leads the faithful into their promised inheritance. And you say, no, wait a second, Pastor. Actually, that's not quite true. Because, of course, Moses died before he was able to lead the people into the promised land. He died right on the threshold of the promised land. Because remember, Moses struck the rock instead of talking to the rock, and he dishonored the Lord. And so, actually, it was Joshua who had to complete the task. And you're absolutely right. Remember, Jesus fulfills and surpasses all these Old Testament patterns. Exact same thing is true with David. We, we often talk about how King David is like an arrow shot at the sun. He points us in the direction of Jesus before ultimately falling tragically short. Exact same thing with David. Uh, David did a lot of things that Jesus is going to come and do. Uh, David defeated our enemies, brought the people, you know, into a great victory, shared with them the spoils. Yes, yes, yes. Jesus does that. But then, because David was a man of blood, it was actually his son Solomon that built the temple and ushered the people into a time of peace and prosperity. So it actually took two Old Testament characters to complete that one pattern to be fulfilled by Jesus. And so it is here. Jesus fulfills and surpasses the pattern set by Moses, adding to it the parts completed by Joshua, the conqueror. Joshua, by the way, is just the Hebrew pronunciation of the name Jesus. Again, God puts the symbolism on the bottom shelf. You're not supposed to be like, gee, I wonder, you know, who is Jesus fulfilling here? No, no. Joshua is how you say Jesus' name if you're in a Hebrew context. Jesus is how you say his name if you're in a Greek context. Same character, so it all fits. Jesus is like Moses in the sense that he leads his people through a dry and dusty land, giving them food and water, protecting them from their enemies, teaching them, forming them, preparing them, and then like Joshua, Jesus also leads us into the fullness of our promised inheritance. The Apostle Paul loved this part of the gospel. He said, in him, in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance. You know, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Christians can sometimes get themselves all tied up in knots, you know. Who, who, you know, who has the best claim on the, on the promised land, you know? Uh, who, who is it? Who, who has the best claim on the promised land? Israel or the, or the Palestinians? The answer is, you know who has the best claim on the promised land? Jesus. Because he is Israel. He is the faithful son. The Apostle Paul said, in him, all the promises of God find their yes 
and amen. But it's not just the land. It's more than the land. It's everything. Everything God ever promised to his people has been secured and is now in the possession of Jesus Christ. And he is eager to share it with all his brothers and sisters in the covenant, be they Jew or Gentile. Last week uh, was a bit of a tense week in the, in the Carter household because we lost the mail key. And, uh, and there were a bunch of Christmas presents in our mailbox, and we kept getting notifications from Amazon that packages had been delivered, but we couldn't claim them because we'd lost the key. Finally, Michaela found the mail key out where we walked the dog, and all of a sudden, she was the most popular person in our household because she had the authority now to claim all the presents that had arrived. <laughs> That's the gospel. The gospel is the good news that nothing that God has intended for human beings has been lost. It has all been claimed by the person of Jesus Christ. He has it all, and he is eager to share it with his people. Just like Joshua conquered the land so that everyone could have their peace, so too Jesus has conquered sin and death. He has won back for us all that we lost through sin and rebellion. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus can set you free from sin and addiction. Jesus can take you back to your heavenly father and your creator. Jesus can teach you what is true, what is beautiful, and what is good. Jesus can feed you and sustain you in this world. And Jesus can unlock for you your inheritance in the next world. He's the prophet like Moses, only better. He's the conqueror like Joshua, only better. is everything we need and everything we've been waiting for. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to revisit the heart of the heart of the gospel during this Advent season. Lord, it's, it's good to get far afield. It's good to cover the whole counsel of God. And then it's good to be brought by a season like this back to the heart and center of it all. The heart and center of the gospel is that Jesus has come, and Jesus is coming. Thanks be to God.